Let's go to work on God's Word this morning, and we've been walking through 1 Samuel, which is all about significant turnarounds in people's lives individually and in the history of Israel, uh, leading up to, to Jesus and how it affects our lives today. And uh, we're going to talk today about facing down giants, because we're coming to one of the most famous, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, David and Goliath. And David, we met in chapter 16. He's a shepherd in the fields around Bethlehem, and he's anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. Problem is, Saul was still the king of Israel. This will get really complicated for David later on. However, he's about to experience, this, this, this shepherd boy, he's about to experience an incredible turnaround, turnaround in his life. He's kind of a no-name in chapter 16, but by the end of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, he is going to be catapulted to the forefront of national attention. He becomes a hero, a national hero. It's an incredible turnaround. So we actually met him when we looked at chapter 16 last week. Now, now let me introduce you to a giant, all right, a giant. And this is chapter 17, verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. So we've got a battle here. And uh, here's this description. Um, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation because it, it converts the units of measurement for us to feet and pounds. He was over nine feet tall. You could also say he was probably a genetic anomaly, but that's tall, over nine feet tall. And he, bore, he, he wore a bronze helmet and his bronze coat of mail. Think the knights of the Middle Ages, they wore the, the coat of mail. And uh, it, the coat of mail itself that he wore in battle, it alone was 125 pounds. Some of you aren't even 125 pounds. Others of you wish you were 125 pounds, but that's, we'll leave that. And the shaft, so he had a spear, and the shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, which was very large. It was so large that, that even the, the tip of the spear made of iron, it, it weighed 15 pounds, just, just the tip of this massive spear. So you get this picture of intimidation this huge guy, and he's coming out, and uh, Israel's camped on one side up this hill, the Philistines up the other side up the hill, and, he, and he's the Philistine champion. And he is defying the armies of God, and he's defying the living God himself that we worship today. He's defying him. And so verse 16 says, for 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and took his stamp. Forty days. Until David, the little guy, will come along and do something about that in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to take a little different approach to this story today, partly because it's so predictable, and partly because some of you are Bible study leaders. Uh, I see some of you who travel and preach. And if you were to, if you were assigned the topic of preaching on one of the, the most famous stories in the Bible. I think there's 
at least three different approaches you could take. You could take, hold your breath, a historical approach, an applicational approach, and an incarnational approach. So as your eyes glaze over, let me reassure you that it's not as complicated as I just made it sound. But there are several ways of understanding a story like this in the Bible. And the first way is the historical approach, the historical approach. Because history is important. Not every world religion and not every worldview globally views history in the same way. We view in the Western world history is pretty, and in the biblical world, pretty linear. Some some worldviews view view time as very circular. Even their understanding of space is different than our spatial dimension. And we believe in a God who acts in time and space. We believe in history. In history, roots and grounds our faith, not our feelings. So that's where we're going to go here. Because, especially with the David and Goliath story, there's all kinds of specific historical, geographic, archaeological information for us. First of all, verse 1, let's back up to the beginning of chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah, between Soko and Azekah. And Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites the other with the valley in between them. Now, there's a lot of information right there that's historic, and it's important. First of all, the Philistines. I, I joked a few weeks ago that they're our favorite bad guys in the book of Samuel. But the Philistines lived on, on, on the coast of Israel, the coastal plain up against the Mediterranean Sea. It's very flat there. And actually, part of the Philistine territory is what we call Gaza today, the Gaza Strip which is in the news almost every day. And, uh, you know, Philistine and Palestinian, they almost sound the same. But the Philistines were not Palestinians. The Palestinians are Arabic peoples. The Philistines, um, you might say they were more European. They came from, they were kind of a maritime people. They came from that area around, some people think they came from Crete, others like from Turkey and Greece. They, they weren't Arabic. They were a different people group. We have no trace of, this, of Philistines anymore in the world today, uh, 3,000 years later. But, but the Philistines occupied that area in part where the war is happening in, in Israel right now, the Gaza Strip. And inland was the Israelites in the hill country. So Israel's really flat up against the Mediterranean Sea, and then there's the hill country. The hill country had, had better soil, they had trees, they had, you, you'd, and military advantage. You'd always want to get up in the hill country. So the Philistines were always trying to press inland to get into the hill country. And the confrontation will happen at the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Elah. So here's a little map for us, and there on the left... You can see the five cities of the Philistines, including Gaza, right down there. And then Goliath was from Gath. You see Gath there? And then right beside it in the green is the Valley of Elah. And it was strategic because you're starting to come up. And on the right, where Bethlehem is and Hebron, Jerusalem, I mean, all of that is in the hill country of Israel. And so the Philistines are pressing up. 
and it and we're told really specifically here that um, that they came up to that area of Azekah and Soko, and one side uh, of that valley was the Philistines, the other side was the Israelites. And then you can see there's a river that runs through there, because we're told that David goes to a brook. He's going to fight Goliath. He's going to take on this guy. I mean, 40 days is enough of Goliath as far as David's concerned. So he's going to take him on. So he goes to this brook, and, he, and he's going to use a sling. And we know also historically that slingers, they were like the sharpshooters of the ancient world. And they, they could, from some distance, pick off somebody and go. So sure enough, I visited a few years ago, Sandy and I, the visit the Valley of Elah, and I was, I'm right there in the base of the valley. You can see that it kind of goes up in hills. And you see that dry stream bed. That's exactly uh, the kind of brook that David would have gone to. I picked up five smooth stones. I think there's five there. You can only see four. Do not ask me if I smuggled them out of Israel. Because I'm not going to answer you. But I mean, this is a real place. And everything fits totally the narrative of this story as David goes and gets five stones and his sling. Now, thanks to people like uh, Jeremy Stein over here and Dr. Wave Nunley and the Center for Holy Land Studies next door at the Assemblies of God headquarters, um, I actually was gifted an actual slinger's stone. Here it is. And it's heavy. And it's round. And it could do deadly damage if it hit you between the eyes at a high speed. I believe, I'm not going to give you the physics, but momentum is mass times velocity. <laughs> and with the leverage arm of a sling, phew, this thing flies. And if it hits you between the eyes, you're dead. And they were the sharpshooters of the ancient world. This is what David, David had lots of target practice in the in the shepherd fields around Bethlehem, uh, not to mention all the times he need to use a sling to, to ward off the wild animals that are going to kill his sheep. So here is David, and he's down here. Everything is precisely and historically, historically like is told to us, described to us. We today know exactly where Soko and Azekah are. We, we, we know where that stream flowed. We, we, we knew where the Philistine came from and why... The Valley of Elah was such a strategic site as they tried to press inland to the highlands. We, everything is totally precise. And this, first of all, gives us confidence in the fact that we can rely on the historic text of Scripture and everything else it says. I mean, the Bible wasn't written by someone smoking weed or eating bad pizza and having world, weird dreams afterwards. Listen. That's what your friends are trying to tell you, but it's not true. I mean, we know every detail of what we see in 1 Samuel 17 is totally accurate. We also know the Philistines had monopoly on the ironworking industry at that time. This was kind of the mid to late Iron Age in human history, uh, 1000 BC to 1200 BC. I mean, it's all right here, and it's precise. But I want to take that just one step farther. We do believe history is real. And, and on one side, I have what, what I would call the objective realism of what the Bible teaches us. The objective realism uh, goes, like, goes like this, that God 
has stepped into time and space, and he has acted. That God literally steps into real places like the Valley of Elah and your home and your job and your health. He steps into those places in real ways, in time and space. This isn't something we just concoct. However, the great battle for us these days has been something that's been coming at us at high speed for uh, 50 or 100 years here in America and in the Western world. It's not objective realism. It's subjective relativism. And just so you know what I'm going to understand what I'm about to say, let, let me... Let me give you some characteristics of subjective relativism that you will more than recognize because it's everywhere in the media, in the entertainment industry, in your classrooms. It's everywhere. And that's first of all that my identity is determined by my feelings and desires. Oh, really? Do you realize how many times a people, people's feelings and desires change over a lifetime? I mean, you're 15 years old. You think eight-year-olds eight year are little jerks, but you were eight years old at one time. Just look at how much you change by the time you're 15. And you think how much you're going to change by the time you're 28. And just could you feel, whether it's your sexuality, whether it's your gender, whether it's your belief system, whether it's how you, what you think about yourself, your feelings keep changing. And if you latch your identity onto your feelings and desires, you've got nothing substantial to hook yourself up to. And you're just going to be drifting all your life and confused and depressed and angry. And this is where our culture is going. Or secondly, truth is either what I want it to be or I choose it to be. Truth is, you know, you, you, know, you do you, I'll do me. I mean, come on, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. And then we get angry at the thought that anybody would impose their truth or their value system on me. And that works fine. Until you get things like, okay, if some culture believes it's right to enslave children, abuse women, and, uh, and indulge in honor killings, is that okay if my truth's my truth, your truth's your truth, it's what I want it to be? This is subjective relativism. It's not objective realism. But there are things that have to do with human rights that are universal. But subjective realism uh, hits a... Hits a Hits a wall with that. Lastly, life experiences are morally neutral and without ultimate meaning. There are people who think you don't even exist because that's just a perceptual thing. It's like we've detached from any kind of objective realism. And uh, one group ascribing to that last statement put it this way, it's like you were given a lump of clay when you were born and what you do with that clay there's no rules, there's no right, there's no wrong. What you do with that, with that clay is totally up to you, and the outcomes are all equally, and this is their words, absurd and meaningless. When I come to a story like David and Goliath, and I look at it through a historical lens, it roots me again to say not only is Scripture understandable and dependable, but it tells me that there is a God. God has stepped into history. He stepped into time and space, and he has acted. And that means Christianity, Christian faith, is based on the objective reality 
of a God who's working in history. We're going to put that on the screen. I'm going to say it one more time. God has stepped into time and space. And Christian faith is not based on how you feel today or what you choose it to be or not to be today or how alluring something may be of a worldview. Christian faith is based on the objective reality of God working in history. This is what we see in David and Goliath. God worked in real history, in real places, at real time, in real time. And that's what our faith is. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on a cross in your place. And then he rose again. I don't care whether you're having a good day or a bad day. It won't change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And he's king of kings and lord of lords. Because our faith is built and based on objective reality, not subjective relativism. Okay, that's the worst part. We got that over with. Now, how about the giants in your life? This is where we take the, not just the historical approach to understanding this story, but the applicational approach. How does taking down giants apply to me? Because you have some giants. Maybe you've taken on a new job. It's pretty challenging. That was a giant. Maybe you got a mother-in-law. That could be a giant in your life. I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, um, maybe, you've got, um, maybe you've got a financial challenge in your life and some of it's out of your control and you just feel like this giant just taunting you day after day after day. It's whatever intimidates you. It's whatever makes life feel hard. We've all got giants in our lives. And I see that David did three things. I'm going to go through this pretty fast, but David did three things to attack this giant. This giant. First of all, he refused to lose heart. He just refused to lose heart. This is verse 32. So David goes to the king, Saul, and said, let no one lose heart. I'm just quoting David there. He let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. That's Goliath. For I'm going to go fight him. <laughs> now, this was not really reassuring to Saul. Um, you are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been a warrior from his youth. First of all, you're puny. He's large. Uh, he's had years of experience. You've just been a shepherd. Uh, you don't know how to fight. And so Saul's not impressed with this. But in the face of all the contradiction, in the face of all the impossibilities, listen, in the face of an addiction in your life, and you keep failing, you keep giving in. Do not lose heart. I mean, David just proclaims this against the most incredible odds that are against him. He says even to the king, don't lose heart. When you lose heart, you just give up and, or you just don't care anymore. Do not lose heart. Well, but I've tried that a few times and it's failed. And, and yet if, if, if you have, you know, if something you need to keep trying and working on. Do not lose heart. We give up far too easily. So don't lose heart. Then I'm going to borrow a cliche. Run towards the roar. Run towards the roar. That comes out of watching lions hunt. Do you realize the males are a little lazy? If you're, if you're a lion and you're a male, you're a little lazy, unfortunately. But, but you've got this huge mane and your roar can just almost shake the ground. But you're not a good hunter. And it's the females who do the hunting. I've seen, Sandy and I have seen uh, a pride of females literally take down a zebra in, in, in Africa and, and just 
I mean, it's amazing. They just crouch. They're under the, they're under the tall grass. And so what they do is they'll go to a watering hole where people like gazelles and wildebeests and zebras will come. They'll go to a watering hole. And on one side, the lion, the male, will just roar, you know, shake the ground, scare the daylights out of, them, out of these animals. So what's your first instinct when you hear a roar over here? You run over here. You run away. Unfortunately, crouching in the grass are all the female lions because they know you're going to get suckered into this. So the lion here roars. They run that way, and the female lions take them down. Sometimes the best thing to do is to not let the impossibilities in our lives, the giants in our lives, uh, to keep intimidating, keep defying us, to keep, I mean, 40 days, day after day after day, Goliath was doing this. And so what does David do? Well, we're told in, uh, we're told in verse 40 of the story. Then David took a staff in his hand, and he chose five Sioux stones, goes down to that creek in the stream, he put them in a pouch, put them in his pocket, uh, along with his sling in his hand. And then what did he do? Did he run away from the roar? No, he did completely opposite. He went towards the giant. He went towards the giant. I mean, towards him. He took the thing that was so intimidating, and he closed the gap between himself and that thing. So... There may be a habit you need to develop in your life. There may be some, like a prayer partner you need in your life. Someone can't do that for you, but you may have to say, I'm not going to let this thing keep intimidating me. I'm going to take some steps towards it. I'm going to get a prayer partner. I'm going I'm to develop a better habit. I'm going to have a tough conversation that I've been avoiding for a long, long time. You just refuse to let fear control all your decisions. And you face that fear and say, there is a way I can either cope with this better or actually take down that giant. And so you do. You run towards the roar. And then you rely on the name of the Lord. You rely on the name of the Lord. And David said to the Philistine, verse 45, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you. Say that out loud with me. In the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied. And all those gathered here, verse 47, will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. Now, faith doesn't deny reality. It just sees past it. I mean, we're, we're living with realism here. There are real giants. We don't deny it. Faith doesn't say, well, I refuse to think anything intimidates me. Of course, things intimidate you. But faith, although it doesn't deny reality, it looks past reality to see the power of the name of an almighty God, of an almighty. We sang it today. It is so sweet to trust in Jesus. And he goes out, this little guy with five stones like this, and a little bit of experience as a sharpshooter, 
to this huge big guy, everything's at stake. The pressure's on him. It was like that guy at the end of the game last Sunday night who tied up the game with a three-pointer. I mean, can you imagine the pressure on that kicker? David is out there. He is the kicker. He is going to take on this guy who's defied a whole nation nonstop for 40 days. He's going to go out there. But he said, he said, I'm rather upset that you are defying the power of the God that I serve. And you're defying his name. And so I'm going out in the power of the name of the Lord God Almighty. And that really brings me to the third approach, which I think personally is the best approach. I do think we need to run towards the roar and not give up hope and trust in the name of the Lord. Of course, we need to do all those things. But I think, I think this story points to something even more if we're going to trust in the name of the Lord. And I'd like the worship team to come back. And I, I call this the incarnational approach. The incarnational approach. And if that's a big word, it means to take on flesh. Just cross out incarnational and put right Jesus there. Because I don't think, ultimately, that we're the Davids. I think we're the cowards standing in the crowd. And we needed a champion. And God gave us a champion. And here's how the script goes. John 1, 14, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And then, so He, incarnation, became flesh. He came among us, real time. In real time, in real space, 2,000 years ago, He came among us. No matter how you feel about it, He came among us. He took on flesh. And His mission was described by John in 1 John 3, verse 8. The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus appeared, was to take on the devil, was to destroy the devil's work. He came to take on the ultimate Goliath in our world. He came to destroy the devil's work. So Paul would say in Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued us, God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. He's rescued us. We've been stared down. We've been addicted. We've been bound. We're failures and we're full of fears. But he came to rescue us. He didn't prop us up and say, act like David and try to rescue yourself. No. He became the champion that rescued us and brought us into the kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of the son he loves, in whom, in whom we have a triumphing grace that means we serve him and we don't serve our fears anymore. And that happened because of the cross. Verse 15 of the next chapter, Colossians 2, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What on earth is he talking about? When Jesus hung on the cross, we meet him in our woundedness because he came and met us in his own woundedness, He met us in our shame because he met us by, on the cross, taking our shame and on himself. He he turned the power, the, the power structures upside down. And what looked like the weakness of the cross, he kicked the devil in the face and stole his right to control you and me. The devil's the ultimate Goliath. 
And Jesus is the ultimate David. In fact, he is sometimes called the son of David. And he, at the cross, disarmed principalities and powers. And there is a day he's coming back again. There's a day he's coming back again where he's going to clean up and finish up what he started at the cross. Look, I'm, I, I, I'm the coward in the crowd. I'm no hero. But I serve a God who's King of kings and Lord of lords. And he took on the devil for me. I mean, I was just, I was just cr cringing and, and scared of life. And, and what if God asked me to do this or that? And what about this big problem in my life? And Jesus steps in. This isn't something you feel and subjectively make up. He stepped in. And at the cross, he disarmed he disarmed the powers and the authorities, the demonic powers and authorities. He made a spectacle of them, and he triumphed over them by the cross. He is our David. And so Paul says in Philippians 2, therefore, therefore, because he did that, God has exalted him to the highest place. And he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And I love this. And every tongue will acknowledge that truth is what I feel it to be. No. But every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Listen, he's not your puppet. He's not your bud. He's not your BFF forever. He's not your homeboy. He's not your servant boy. He's not your errand boy. He is Lord. And he's punched the devil in the face. At the cross, he put a stone into the head of the enemy. And that's why there's hope for you. That's why you don't need to lose heart. That's why you can go after the roar, not away from the roar. That's why we trust in his name.